welcome to the China in the World podcast, a series of discussions examining China's foreign policy and shifting engagement with the world. Brought to you by Carnegie China, hosted by Paul Hanley. Welcome, everyone, to the first iteration of Carnegie China's Distinguished Speaker Series for 2022. My name is Paul Hanley, and I'm the director of Carnegie China. Carnegie China's Distinguished Speaker Series brings together leading experts on international affairs to discuss current issues in U.S. foreign policy, China, Asia, and the world. And I'm glad to be joined today by my colleague and good friend, Dr. Evan Medeiros, to discuss the Biden administration's emerging Indo-Pacific strategy and China policy, as well as recent developments on the ground in the Asia Pacific. I will note that uh, Evan took place in our week-long distinguished speaker program on the ground in Beijing uh, a week, or, sorry, after leaving the Obama administration in the summer of 2015. He spent a week with us then, and it's a great pleasure that Evan is able to be with us today for our first ever virtual distinguished speaker program. So let me first uh, introduce a little bit of Evan's background. Evan is the Penner Family Chair in Asian Studies, the Kling Family Senior Fellow in U.S.-China Relations at Georgetown University. He's also a Senior Advisor with the Asia Group. And importantly for our session today, uh, Evan is also a non-resident Senior Associate in the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And an interesting bit of trivia that I want to start out with that folks may not know is that Evan got his professional start at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in the prestigious Junior Fellows Program. Evan's research and teaching focuses on the international politics of East Asia, uh, U.S.-China relations, China's foreign and national security policies. And prior to his current role, Evan served for six years in the White House under former President Obama, serving on the National Security Council staff as first as director for China, Taiwan, and Mongolia, and then as the special assistant to the president and senior director for Asia. And in that capacity, he was responsible for coordinating U.S. policy toward the Asia-Pacific across the areas of diplomacy, defense policy, economic policy, and intelligence. Prior to the White House, Dr. Madero served for seven years as a senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation, uh, he also uh, served as a policy advisor in the Treasury Department in the Bush administration uh, when I was in the National Security Council working on China. And uh, Evan was working on the U.S.-China Strategic and Economic Dialogue. And I can think of few people better than Evan to join us today uh, and to help us understand the Biden administration's emerging policy in Asia. Evan, thank you for joining us. Well, Paul, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to uh, be back at Carnegie. Uh, do anything for the institution, but also uh, to talk with you about U.S.-China. Uh, so uh, really, I've been really looking forward to this. Likewise. Um, and before we kick off, let me just say to the audience, um, because I know that, uh, you know, after I, you and I have a bit of a discussion, I know that they're going to have questions. And uh, to submit a question, I just want to tell our audience to use the chat function on YouTube. We will also post a recording of this discussion as an episode on our China in the World podcast. Mm. So you'll be able to find this conversation and then all of the previous 
uh, over 150 episodes uh, on the uh, China and the World podcast. Which I have to say, Paul, is probably one of the best online resources out there for understanding Chinese foreign policy. I mean, I teach this at Georgetown. I make sure all my graduate and undergraduate students are avid listeners. I assign many of your podcast episodes. So kudos to you. It's really an extraordinary, I mean, at 150 episodes and growing, it really is a treasure trove of information. So kudos to you and your Carnegie colleagues. Appreciate you saying that. And um, I'm glad that uh, you're on several of those uh, episodes as well. So, um, Evan, let's kick off. Um, I want to start, you know, by talking about the state of U.S.-China relations. Uh, We can talk about Ukraine uh, in a second. I want to leave that out. But even prior to Ukraine, I want to get a sense of your view of the trajectory of relations between the U.S. and China, you know, from your time when you were working on it in the White House to today. Uh, how are relations different from your time in the Obama administration? What What are the driving factors that got us uh, to the point that we are today? I mean, many analysts say U.S.-China relations are now at their lowest point since 1989. Ambassador Burns, our ambassador in China, recently said that U.S.-China relations are at their lowest point since 1972. So what's your assessment of how we got here? Uh, what are the factors behind yeah. it and how we expect it to unfold? I'm glad you you asked that question, and I'm, and I'm glad that we're beginning the conversation there, because setting the baseline is essential for um, any kind of assessment of where we're going in the future. And, um, you know, any time... Uh, analysts or diplomats, you know, compare it to 89 or 72. It's very, it's very difficult to draw these kind of historical comparisons because the U.S.-China relationship was so radically different in 72, right? As bad as things are right now, we still have a $600 billion plus trading relationship with China, right? We obviously didn't have that in 72. So I find some of these historical comparisons to be challenging, but I, but I understand the intent of the message. The the first and the most important point to keep in mind is when one assesses the U.S.-China relationship, it's really important to separate the cyclical from the structural. And for those uh, listeners that are familiar with my research and my writing, I think that this um, distinction is an essential one to assessing the trajectory of the relationship, because the cyclical basically has to do with, you know, the next six months, the next 12 months, how do political and economic cycles in both countries affect the relationship. And cyclically, I think that we're in a period of a very fragile equilibrium, but I believe that there is an equilibrium that exists now. How long it'll hold or whether it will hold is an open question. Um, But separate from the cyclical or the structural, and that's where I become a lot more pessimistic because what I see is the areas of divergence growing, the areas, areas of convergence shrinking, Um, I see the uh, communication channels as having been atrophied, and I see domestic politics in both countries having an increasing and in some cases outsized influence on the trajectory of the relationship. And then you've got some of the perennial problems in the relationship like Taiwan uh, that I think are only getting worse um, and could um, lead to a substantial deterioration in the future. So. 
you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm quite concerned. You know, what, what we hear from the Chinese, and I'm sure you've heard this, you know, quite often, is uh, this notion of uh, Graham Allison's The Thucydides Trap. Uh, that is the dynamic between a rising power and an established power. And in Graham Allison's uh, research, a number of those uh, historical precedents result in conflict because the established power becomes anxious and nervous about the rising power and then moves to contain or block the, the continued rise of that rising power. And we hear this from the Chinese, frankly, in spades. Um, and I want to get your reaction to that. How much of the deterioration of the relation is a result of this dynamic of the Thucydides trap? So I'm not a big fan of the Thucydides trap because it implies that there are immutable laws of international relations, right? Like there are immutable laws of physics. And I simply don't think that that's true. I think human agency, the agency of states, domestic politics, the interaction between countries um, is really what drives bilateral relationships. And I think that's especially the case in, in the US-China relationship. Um, there are also lots of debates among scholars about whether or not Graham Allison's analysis of the 14 cases of the Thucydides trap is an accurate one. You know, and it's important to keep in mind that among the outliers, you know, the cases where established rising powers don't end up in conflict are some of the most recent ones um, in international relations history, U.S. and the Soviet Union. So the, the fact that, that there is an extraordinary degree of economic interdependence, the fact that we're now in the nuclear age, there are a whole variety of conditions that raise questions about the accuracy of the Thucydides trap. But even independent from that, the Chinese like the Thucydides trap because it basically empowers them. It, it essentially says, um, this is not our fault. Uh, it takes agency away from China and basically says the United States, because the gap in relative capabilities is shrinking, is now feeling insecure and it's lashing out. And it's that lashing out that's causing it. Um, which means that this is not China's responsibility, right? So it's not surprising to me, and you and I have been in multiple conversations independently and together with Chinese scholars, where they make this argument, um, essentially um, suggesting that um, it's uh, America that precipitated this downturn in relations, not what what not China's actions itself. And I think it's important to keep in mind from a U.S. perspective, and I believe this that the fact that Chinese capabilities, their large economy, their military, their diplomatic footprint, all of that has increased is not ipso facto what has caused the um, you know, increasing competitiveness in the US-China relationship. It's not that China has power. It is how China has chosen to use its power and in particular challenge many of the key attributes of the you know, rules-based system, whether it's um, norms and rules related to human rights, norms and rules related to um, maritime territorial disputes, uh, non-proliferation, um, uh, rules and norms related to trade and investment. China is challenging all of this. My view is, as China has grown more powerful, it's basically tried to push and probe the boundaries of what it can get now that it's a more powerful state. So it's really that calculation. 
So let me ask you then, because you served in the White House in an, a, a very interesting time period. Um, as you know, I served in four and a half years in the Bush administration during a period of engagement. You came on early in the Obama administration, still a period of engagement. But what a lot of people talk about is that during the Obama administration, China's policies and behaviors, um, as you said, pushing harder, more assertive uh, behavior uh, we saw from China, it, you know, moving away from the, you know, bide your time and, and hide your capability strategy to something that's much more assertive in nature, that China's domestic approach became more restrictive and repressive, um, and that economically there were shifts which created unfavorable conditions for U.S. companies and other international companies. You were there during the Obama administration when those changes seemed to be taking place. How did you see it during your time? And how much of the downturn in relations do you ascribe to changes in Chinese behavior and policies? Yeah, so I, I largely attribute it to changes in Chinese capabilities, Chinese policies, practices, and behaviors. Um, as somebody that lived through the transition from Hu Jintao to Xi Jinping, um, some of these behaviors uh, had started had their roots in Hu Jintao, right? The questioning in the debate about keeping a low profile, being more assertive on maritime territorial issues, uh, trying to weaken um, human rights norms internationally, uh, moving to a more state-directed development model. All of these policies had their roots in Hu Jintao. But when Xi Jinping came to power, uh, it's as if he put his foot on the gas, right? He decided to be much more aggressive and assertive in all of these different areas. Now, the Chinese argument is the U.S. provoked China to do that. I don't believe that's the case. Um, I think that there was some pushback against China's boundary probing and, and boundary pushing, and that touched off an action-reaction cycle. But I think fundamentally, Xi Jinping simply, as a leader, was more confident. Uh, he was more risk-acceptant, um, and uh, he uh, had a sense of urgency um, and wanted to uh, see what he could accomplish. And so while many of these issues may have had their roots in Hu Jintao, it was almost as if Xi Jinping decided to pursue them by a factor of 10, both in terms of speed and intensity. And that's why I believe that Xi Jinping is not, It's some sinologists argue that Xi Jinping was sort of inevitable. He's just a manifestation of the Chinese system. And if it wasn't Xi Jinping, it would be another leader like him. I, I have a different view. I think Xi Jinping uh, is unique and different. When the Chinese system chose Xi Jinping, they didn't know exactly what they were getting. I think they thought they were gonna get a spicy version of Hu Jintao. And what they got was something very, very different, norm busting both domestically and internationally. And so I think that much of what's going on in the US-China relationship today is um, a China that is exploring the boundaries of its expanding capabilities as a rising power. So we've talked about the state of relations, very complicated, difficult period, um, but we haven't even really talked about the Ukraine conflict yet. 
And so let's add in the Ukraine conflict. You you wrote an excellent uh, article in the recent edition of China Leadership Monitor, um, and I encourage everyone to take a look at this. It, it's the most comprehensive laydown of China's approach to its strategic relationship with Russia and the Ukraine conflict. You write um, that China, you write about China's position on the war in Ukraine. Um, and you write about the impact on U.S.-China relations as well as global politics. We're in the fourth month now. The war in Ukraine shows no sign of abating. Uh, and many analysts argue that, that China's response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine is putting even more strains on an already strained U.S.-China relationship. In fact, at the end of April, uh, Pew re released a, a, a new poll of U.S. views on China Favorability, unfavorability has reached, again, an all-time high. 82% of Americans have a wow. negative view of China. And respondents uh, said that China's partnership with Russia was the most serious problem for the United States. So how do you assess the impact of the Ukraine conflict on the uh, relationship? I mean, as you said, Paul, the Ukraine conflict has only increased both the perception and the reality of competition in the U.S.-China relationship. In terms of a matter of perception, because the Russian invasion of Ukraine is such an obvious violation of probably the most sacrosanct principle part of international relations today, protection of state borders, state sovereignty, territorial integrity, um, it just raised the question in the minds of, of um, policymakers and leaders all over the world, not just in the United States, basically, Russia did this to Ukraine, will China do it toward Taiwan, right? So it raised that obvious question. The fact that Xi Jinping, 20 days before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, signed this historic joint statement that is effectively alignment with Russia um, and was an extraordinary expression of a sort of common worldview that was very much about constraining US power and reforming and reshaping uh, the liberals' rules-based system, I, I think it just accentuated um, concerns and anxieties in the United States about what kind of rising power China was going to be. But it had other ancillary effects as well. Um, the rest of the world is now much more attentive to and focused on the plight of Taiwan and the Taiwan question. Um, and as a result, I think there's far more international attention and, frankly, sympathy for Taiwan among policymakers and business leaders all over the world than ever before, which, of course, makes China much more anxious, right? I mean, look look just at European policymakers. Recent, joints, uh, recent communiques by the G7, by NATO, all reference Taiwan now. It's now de rigueur. It's just sort of an accepted fact. And it'll be interesting to see what happens at the NATO summit at the end of this month, Paul, when you have South Korea, Japan, and Australian leaders also attending what that says. So I think that that not only has it the Ukraine conflict just accentuated sense of competition and diverging interests between America and China, it's taken probably the most sensitive issue in the US-China relationship and sort of given it international attention, which just increases you know, Chinese anxieties. Final point here, Paul, is you know, a big question is what lessons Beijing will learn or the way the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I, I think it's too early to yeah. tell. Um, 
And I think we need to be really judicious what conclusions we draw, both preliminary and final. But that will be really important um, in understanding how Ukraine affects Taiwan. And the Chinese being the Chinese will probably draw a mix of lessons, some lessons that are cautionary for them, some lessons that give them confidence. Yeah. Your point about bringing greater attention to the Taiwan issue is an important one. And I just... As you know, I participated in the dialogue uh, over the last weekend here in Singapore, and there were European participants. Um, and what you heard from them is that you know there's a view now in Europe, a predominant view now that you know what happens in Asia matters for Europe. Um, and we saw, of course, the China EU uh, summit uh, where the Chinese did not want Ukraine on the agenda, uh, and all all the EU wanted to talk about, frankly, was uh, was was Ukraine um, and and uh, and of course there's concerns about the implications for Taiwan. Oh, can um, I just come in on that? Because yeah, absolutely. You make, you make a really important point. I, I think his, when we look back at the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it's possible that geopolitically the biggest consequence may be that Europe got more active in Asia and Asia got more connected with Europe. And if the Chinese continue to mishandle their relationship with Europe, you may see a long-term alienation of Europe from China and basically an effective realignment between the United States, Europe, and American allies and partners in Asia uh, focused on constraining Chinese power. And so, you know, uh, it's a little too early to tell, but the trend lines, as you rightly point out, are not particularly positive. And so, you know, Europe as sort of a swing state in geopolitics is important. And I think, um, you know, if the Chinese uh, continue to to poorly yeah. handle that, that realignment yeah. of Europe could have, you know, broad ranging geopolitical implications, uh, including yeah. for the US-China relationship. And, and one, just one other point on this, one big misreading from the Chinese appears to be this idea that, that the Chinese use with the Europeans that, they need to stop following the Americans on these issues. And what they've heard, I think, very robust way is we're not following the, the Americans on Ukraine. This is our issue. This is Europe. And this matters significantly. And uh, I think that's been a, a a huge misjudgment on the, on the Chinese part. And we've heard that from Europe. Yeah, I, it, you know, I'm glad you make that point, because one of the things that I just struggle with as a scholar of China is how China regularly mishandles the Europeans, right? Every Basically every time going to the US invasion of Iraq in the mid 2000s, um, every time there's a period of transatlantic tension after the US invasion of Iraq, during the Trump administration, the Chinese sort of swoop in to the major European capitals to try and leverage this period of transatlantic tensions. And they usually, frankly, end up mishandling it and it results in greater tensions between European leaders, the EU and China. And I think the point you just made is an excellent demonstration of that, right? I mean, you had um, you know, the top diplomat of the EU, Barroso, coming out of the April 1 EU China basically saying, we told the Chinese, like, we're not following the United States, we're doing what we're doing because we believe in it, which is just insulting to the Europeans. And so the, the question is, why do the Chinese keep making these same mistakes with Europe? I think the language he said was it was a dialogue of the deaf. Uh, pretty harsh. Exactly. That, that pretty he harsh. Used. 
Okay, Evan, I really want to talk to you now because, you know, the folks that are now in the Biden administration that are that are leading foreign policy are all folks that you worked with very closely in the Obama administration. And so I really want to focus now, you know, we've talked about the state of relations, we've talked about the impact of the Ukraine crisis. Um, I want to talk a little bit now about uh, the Biden administration's approach to the Indo-Pacific uh, and to China. And we've had quite a bit come out over the last several months. Uh, the Indo-Pacific strategy, um, we uh, recently had a speech by Secretary Blinken uh, on China policy. President Biden, of course, just went to the region to visit Japan and Korea and meet with the Quad leaders and to announce the Indo-Pacific economic framework. So we've got quite a bit now. Um, and so I want to get a sense, you know, in your view, what are the main policy continuities from the last administration? Uh, what are the changes from the last administration? Um, what do you think are the strengths of Biden's China policy and Asia policy? And, and where where do you think the administration needs to step up its game? It's a lot there, but we can we can take it. In pieces. Yeah, that's a lot. I mean, look, um, we, we can start with sort of comparisons between this administration and that administration. And, you know, Paul, you know my views well. I think the administration sort of gets a bad rap as Trump late. I just think that's an unfair criticism because sure, there are similarities and differences, but the differences to me are big, important, sort of chunky differences between the Biden approach and the Trump approach, right? I mean, you know, in particular, um, you know, the, it, it's, it's important to remember that there, that, you know, Biden from day one basically said, we're not interested in changing China. So they took regime change off the table, right? Which is something the Trump administration very specifically embraced. Number two, the Trump administration wasn't really interested in working with allies and partners. That literally is the centerpiece of what Biden's doing in terms of his China strategy. Number three, the, the Trump team through their tariffs and other measures was pretty committed to a very robust economic decoupling. That's not where the Biden administration is. I think the Biden administration realizes there needs to be um, a judicious and smart approach to economic interdependence to reduce those areas of um, national security risk and vulnerability, but that, uh, you know, trade and investment, you know, serves the interests of American businesses and workers and consumers. Um, the Trump administration didn't really believe in dialogue. They said dialogue was an effort to, you know, was just a waste of time. And they didn't really Except believe in, the in cooperation. Space. Only in the that? trade space. Only in the trade space, really, the negotiations on trade. That was the only dialogue, right. really, I they had up and running. That's right. That's right. And I think the Biden team has shown they're pretty different, right? They believe in high-level dialogue. I mean, my favorite fun fact of the day is uh, the administration's been in place for 16 months. Uh, Biden and she have now talked with each other three times. So that's basically a high-level meeting every 5.3 months. That's pretty good. Right. Of course, Jake Sullivan met with Yang Jichur in Luxembourg just this week. So clearly they believe in high level dialogue and they're doing good things with it. I mean, basically in March, after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it was because of high level dialogue, Jake meeting with Yang in Rome. And then three days later, Biden meeting with Xi, that the administration succeeded in effectively putting a cap on the Russia-China relationship. No military cooperation. Uh, and, and sanctions compliance. Mm. That's a really serious piece of business. So they believe in dialogue. They've demonstrated they can achieve 
strategic results with that dialogue. And the other piece is they don't like to talk about it. Uh, and I think yeah. they should do more in talking about it, but there's actually limited episodic cooperation. Um, students are flowing back and forth. The administration last year um, used very high level diplomacy to get the Chinese to participate in a coordinated release of the strategic petroleum reserve. The Chinese are still playing ball uh, with the, the US, the, the, or the JCPOA agreement on Iran. So I don't want to overdo the cooperation point because the Chinese are not really in the mood to cooperate. But the administration basically said, theoretically, when it's in our interest, we're ready to do that. And I give Tony Blinken very substantial credit for sort of laying out four baskets in his speech where he could cooperate. And look, those are all politically sensitive issues. He's subject to vulnerability. But my broader point is where there are differences between Biden and Trump, they're pretty fundamental, chunky, important differences. That's why I think their, Biden's policy is not Trump light, it's Biden plus. It's very interesting. And um, I, I tend to agree with you on that. Um, you mentioned cooperation. It's, it's an interesting point that there's some areas quietly that have been worked on. And Secretary Blinken mentioned in his speech, you know, some of the big global issues, uh, talked about, uh, you know, pandemic, uh, working together with China on pandemics, non, non-proliferation issues, climate, you know, he named some, but, you know, cooperation, you, you just said China is not in the mood to cooperate. Break that down a little bit. Why is China not in the mood to cooperate? And also, you've given one of the most articulate uh, sort of characterizations of cooperation with China over the years, whether we've been able to do it, why we've not been able to do it. So talk about from just a fundamental stance, what's the challenge with cooperation with China, especially on these big global issues? Yeah, I mean, Paul, you and I have been talking about this for years. In fact, I think at one point we came close to writing an article together about it. I think we should do it after this podcast. Particularly the issue with cooperation is um, the Chinese view is we're cooperate. They they see the cooperation as a negotiation. In other words, uh, we China want to see what kind of uh, payment we can extract from the United States to cooperate, right? Um, and of course, the U.S. view is cooperation is not a gift to the United States. Cooperation is a recognition of shared interests, right? And, you know, you live this as the NSC representative to the six-party talks on North Korea, where the Chinese were very actively cooperation, cooperating because they believed it was their interest to prevent uh, or to bring about the denuclearization of North Korea. So my point about not being in the mood to cooperate is right now the Chinese, um, you know, the, they uh, are unhappy with the competitive tenor of the relationship the constant criticism of China um, by a variety of actors in the US, especially the Congress. And their view is until you stop doing this, until the United States creates a more friendly environment, we're not going to cooperate. And I give uh, you know, Tony Blinken, Jake Sullivan, and Kurt Campbell, you know, a lot of credit because, you know, having been through this experience in the Obama administration, you know, they basically have told the Chinese, look, Cooperate if you think it's in your interest, but we're not going to pay you for it and we're not going to do anything. And even when we cooperate on issues of mutual interest, that doesn't somehow eliminate or obviate, you know, our desire or, or 
um, our willingness to criticize you on other areas, because that's the nature of our relationship today. And I think the Chinese are still very much digesting that because they they, they just, you know, they're the Chinese are looking for every opportunity possible to reduce mm. the competitive aspects of our relationship, both in, in yeah. word and deed, right? Let me ask you about this because um, I agree with what you say. Um, I do think the Chinese want to trade on issues. Um, and it's clearly the Biden administration doesn't have any appetite to do that. And the idea, of course, is, look, climate change is a global issue. You have as much at stake as that on that as we do, as the international community does. Why should we trade? On yeah, if not more, we, if not more. If not more. Let me ask you, in looking back in the history of our relationship, have been there been times when previous administrations have been willing to trade? And so have the Chinese gotten accustomed to that and now we're breaking those patterns? Is that your view? Or has this been a consistent approach from the U.S. side that issues should be dealt with on their own merits? Hmm. You know, that's an excellent question. Um, have there been times? I wonder this sometimes because I, I think back, uh, you know, to previous administrations that, that I served in where we wanted to find ways to cooperate and, and you know, did, did we in fact give the Chinese the indication that we might be willing to do that? Um, clearly we're not today. But were we in the past is a question that, that I often. Yeah, think. I mean, you're right. I mean, the, the Chinese clearly see cooperation and dialogue as sort of a way to manage the United States. I think very much in the 90s and the 2000s, their view was we will give the Americans some some cooperation uh, in order to you know prevent them from seeing us as an implacable foe and reduce the degree of American containment of China, right? I think that that was sort of the driving Chinese narrative. Um, and they have convinced themselves that that was the case in the past. Now, if you look at the track record, right? I mean, um, we cooperated with them on WTO accession, right? We were able to get them to, you know, agree to a variety of pretty significant um, commitments on market access. It doesn't really look like we gave anything up for that. Similarly, if you look at the kind of commitments we got from China on nuclear and missile proliferation in the 90s and 2000s, including on North Korea, I don't remember America ever really giving anything, giving the mm -hmm. Chinese anything in exchange, right? We were, were we less vocal on human rights issues? Not really. Were we less willing to pursue, I don't know, uh, trade cases? Not clear, but the Chinese have come to that conclusion. So I think that that question you ask is, is, mm. is, is worthy of further study. I think the frustration they face today is that they basically re realize we've, you know, we're no longer going to play that game. I think that if there's, you know, I think, um, you know, perhaps another way to answer the question, Paul, is in the Obama administration, I think that they engaged in a lot of strategic dialogue with us, the strategic and economic dialogue, among others. And I think that they believe that that in the economic relationship, that they were uh, they were able to effectively use strategic economic dialogue as a way to sort of buy time, buy us off, you know, prevent us from taking more aggressive trade actions against them, which 
the Bush administration could have done, the Obama administration could have done and didn't. Mm. So perhaps, you know, there might be something in, in the economic relationship where they feel that that um, they were able to sort of manipulate us with in, in, in that way. Interesting. Um, I think I think you're it's it's um, it's it's an area to look at even further because we got to figure out a way on some of these issues. We should be cooperating and we're just not. Um, and Secretary Blinken said it, you know, the administration stands ready to do so. You know, we talked a, a little bit uh, about the I mentioned the Indo-Pacific economic framework. You know, as you know, I've been in Singapore now for the last several months. One of the things I hear often from experts uh, and others out here in Southeast Asia that, you know, clearly the American security commitment to the region is is strong um, through its alliance relationships now with AUKUS, um, but they're hoping for more from the United States in terms of economics and trade. Um, The Biden administration just announced the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. Uh, with, and, and they've now got 13 other allies and partners that have uh, signed up to explore this. Um, what's your assessment of IPEF? Uh, is it going to be enough to compete, for example, uh, with the Chinese in terms of their own economic diplomacy? Uh, they're part of the, the uh, Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, the RCEP, and they've um, applied to the previous TPP, now called the CPTPP. So talk about, if you could, the, inter- the uh, Indo-Pacific economic framework. Is it going to be enough? What more can the administration do in this area, in your view? Yeah, I mean, look, I think the best thing you can say about IPEF is that it's an initiative that keeps the United States in the game, right? We're on the field, right? We're playing ball. It keeps us there. But as is well known, uh, certainly to listeners today, is that without market access and without that great big carrot of access to the U.S. market, um, you know, it, there are limits to how much IPEF really is a viable alternative. You know, mm-hmm. I would I would say this: I'm more optimistic about IPEF today, uh, simply because of the number of countries that signed up to it initially, or at least agreed to begin negotiations. What that tells me is that the demand signaled for an economic alternative to reliance on China is strong and arguably it's 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 stronger than I would have anticipated. I was worried that IPEF was only going to be joined by the major industrialized democracies of mm-hmm. Asia, right? But the fact that you have a, a small little economy like Fiji in the Pacific Islands, right? The number of ASEAN countries that that agreed to begin negotiation. What that tells me is that demand is pretty high. There's a strong appetite, and you know nobody wants China to dominate mm. uh, East Asia. Nobody wants to be excessively dependent on China. Yeah. And so I think um, I, I hope that IPEF of IPEF evolves into something more substantial. I hope that the U.S. looks at uh, rejoining TPP or the successor of, C, uh, of of TPP, but we need to get back into the market access game uh, if we want to, um, you know, compete in a sustained way over over the long term. 
Evan, in the last few minutes, I want to do, turn to some audience questions, if I could. Yeah. Uh, we've got one from uh, Nova Daily, uh, who I served with in the Bush administration. Right. I served with him in the, the Treasury Department in the Bush administration as well. He's a CFIUS guru. There you go. He asks, given China's latest declarations and pronouncements regarding territorial waters and military activities outside of Chinese territory and recent actions to intercept Australian aviation activity, is it not inevitable that some form of military conflict will occur between the U.S. and China? And if so, even or even hypothetically, should it occur, where do you see that happening? How should the U.S. prepare for it? And what steps should be in place to de-escalate conflict should it occur? Uh, it's a great question. It's a hard question. Look, I'm very concerned about the Taiwan issue because what I see is I see a lot of loose talk, including on the U.S. side. I think the U.S. needs to say less and do more with a greater focus on a deterrence, less, you know, less commentary and discussion uh, about actual U.S. policy. I think that's muddying the waters. Um, I see a lot of loose talk. I see hardening positions on all sides, especially in mainland China. Uh, I see growing capabilities, um, and we're about to enter into, into a transition period as Taiwan prepares for its January 2024 election. And what I worry about is you know, the period after the Chinese political transition uh, in 2023 as the election cycle kicks up in Taiwan. Uh, and I worry less about um, you know, the outbreak of, of armed conflict per se, you know, actual amphibious assault on the part of the PRC. What I worry about is a convergence of trends that could precipitate a fourth Taiwan Straits crisis, right? That's what concerns me, that Beijing becomes sufficiently frustrated, Beijing becomes sufficiently anxious that it decides to throw the equivalent of a uh, sort of strategic brushback pitch against Taiwan. Basically, you know, something that uh, tries to convince Taiwan and the United States to, you know, uh, stop changing the status quo in Beijing's perceptions. Not my view, it's their view. But I worry that um, we could be on a trajectory because of uh, growing anxieties, concerns, changes in intentions and capabilities. Um, you know, the announcement a few weeks ago, Paul, you'll remember that Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi was going to travel to Taiwan, yeah. um, you know, uh, created a, a, you know, a lot of concern. And I think if that trip had gone forward, it could have been very, very, very uh, destabilizing, you know, and I, th I just think we need to be aware of actions like that. You know, one of the things, and I know you've been through this with, with the Chinese side, is when in the in the government, when you compare notes on, on Taiwan, it was my sense they would usually have a list of, you know, U.S.-China interact, U.S.-Taiwan interaction that they didn't like, but the list was broken into two. One was things that the U.S. did that had been done previously, so didn't break new ground. But then they had that list of things that they thought were were new, uh, new, new actions or new uh, interactions with the Taiwan side, and those they took much more seriously. It is interesting to note that in 1997, Newt Gingrich, as Speaker of the House, visited Taiwan. So, so yeah. this is in fact um, this is in fact not something new. Uh, this has happened in the past. 
Um, and so, you know, hopefully the Chinese will, will go back and look at the record on that because it has happened before. That's right. That's right. Uh, question for you on, on, on Taiwan um, and a lot of interest from the audience on President Biden's statements. Of course, he now three times has said that in response to a question that the United States would get involved militarily to defend Taiwan. The administration, the White House then has to sort of roll that back and say, no, no, that's, you know, the U.S. policy hasn't changed in that regard. We we do have, and you and I talked about when it happened, politicians on both sides of the aisle uh, coming out saying this is a great development because we need strategic clarity. We need Beijing to know uh, what we will do um, should something happen. In your view, um, would a less ambiguous Taiwan policy exacerbate tensions? Would it make our uh, would it make it worse, uh, more difficult, or would it be an effective deterrent and reduce the risks to peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait? How do you see this question? Well, look, we are where we are today, which is the president of the United States has you know made these statements three or four times, you know, um, depending on how you count. And I think that's created an environment of some some confusion about the nature of U.S. policy. Um, and you know, I just think we need to tread really, really carefully. And you know, doing things like monkeying around with the components of our One China policy on a on the State Department website, you know, these kinds of small things just create all sorts of confusion, increase anxieties, and frankly, make it harder to um, deter mainland China. And I think the focus needs to be on deterring them. And it's gonna be really, really hard to deter mainland China if you know they think that we're trying to move from a one China policy to a one China, one Taiwan policy, right? Yeah. You know, people forget our, you know, our one China policy has many components to it. A big one is the TRA. Another big part of it is the six assurances, right? It's not just, the three communiques and a big part of the TRA, just read the preamble of the TRA. The preamble of the TRA says very clearly that, you know, an action to try and, um, you know, coerce Taiwan militarily will be seen as a grave threat to peace and security in the Western Pacific, right? That that's That's pretty explicit in my assessment. And I think we should just use that language in the TRA, remind, Chinese officials about that. Um, yeah. yeah. Frankly, I think, Evan, that, you know, I was, as I mentioned, is at the Shangri-La Dialogue, and, and it seemed to me that Secretary Austin was pretty clear this time uh, in terms of laying out uh, the U.S. Right. policy on it. And, and it, and he talked about the One China Policy, Six Assurances, the Taiwan Relations Act, do not support Taiwan independence. But then he read some language from the Taiwan Relations Act in terms of the obligations uh, to assist Taiwan um, and, um, and, and the obligation for the U.S. to, to maintain its own capacity to respond uh, to a use of force. So I think your points are um, well articulated, and I think the administration has taken those into account. My staff, you know, I could go on, Evan, uh, talking to you for quite some time. But my staff is reminding me that we've actually hit the time limit. We've gone okay. a little bit over it. Um, and so I, I know you've got quite a bit on your schedule and I don't want to take too much of your time. Thank you very much for sharing your you, insights Paul. and your thoughts. And um, we look forward to, to having you back again. 
And uh, it's a it's a pleasure to have you as a colleague at the Carnegie Endowment. Thank you. Thank you, Paul.